The answer that matters depends on the context. The context you need to have is that cryptocurrency, i.e. Bitcoin, was invented or discovered initially to allow a money by the people that cannot be shut down by government. In that context, the most important element to be decentralized is the network of nodes. If the nodes are not decentralized, nothing else decentralized matters. If the nodes are decentralized, then the other things kind of matter, but not as much. The Best in Bitcoin Made Audible I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to the show. This is Bitcoin Audible, and I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And we have a great, great little read today. Um, this one is uh, this one is from the Bitcoin or just BitcoinReserve.com, and uh, it is written by Armin the Parman. Uh, also, uh, it's it, the the key thing about this one is, particularly in the wake of Ethereum and everything that's going on with Tornado Cash and being uh, very potentially censored at the base layer as they move to proof of stake, is what is the point? Like People like point, oh, there's so many nodes on Ethereum, there's so many nodes on these other networks. What is the point? What is the point of decentralization? Decentralization has a very clear and concrete purpose in Bitcoin. And all, so many of these projects have the, the facade of decentralization. They have, they have decentralization in one particular aspect, but not the one that matters. Not the one that is the very purpose, the very reason that Bitcoin is a revolutionary innovation. And that is what Armin does uh, really well in just kind of laying out in a short uh, to the point read that I don't think I've like just hit in in such a succinct fashion before. So this will be a good one uh, for today and uh, I'll have an episode out for tomorrow. Also keep an eye out for Shitcoin Insider. Um, I'm hoping to get it out tonight when I get back from the meetup, but uh, I want to have Maximum Maximalism Shitcoin Insider number eight available to listen to very soon. So stay tuned to that one and subscribe. Real quick, I just want to thank our amazing sponsors, CoinKite and the Cold Card Hardware Wallet, um, the longest running Bitcoin-only hardware wallet out there. Then to Swan Bitcoin, a huge resource for me and the best Bitcoin onboarding experience in the space. And then of course, the Fold Card, well, the Fold app and the Fold Card. A great place for sats back on literally everything in your fiat life. It is one of those must-have tools if you're still stuck in the fiat world to stack sats everywhere, all the time. It is like magic. 20% off, well, co discount codes and links to, sh uh, to all these guys in the show notes. So don't forget to check them out. With that, let's get into today's read. And it's titled, Understanding Decentralization in Bitcoin. Written by Armin the Parman. Bitcoin is decentralized, but what does that even mean? 
For any cryptocurrency, exactly what is it that needs to be decentralized? Many elements can be decentralized, but which matter? The meaning of decentralization might seem obvious. It's not. The word decentralization may even obviously seem like a good thing, which is why it's thrown into the marketing spin of anything cryptocurrency-related. The literal meaning is that there is no center. No center of what, though? Of people? Miners? Hodlers? Nodes? Exchanges? Wallets? The answer that matters depends on the context. The context you need to have is that cryptocurrency, i.e. Bitcoin, was invented or discovered initially to allow a money by the people that cannot be shut down by government. In that context, the most important element to be decentralized is the network of nodes. If the nodes are not decentralized, nothing else decentralized matters. If the nodes are decentralized, then the other things kind of matter, but not as much. Decentralization of miners is also very important, but in my view and in the context stated, that is secondary to nodes. How can you know which aspect of decentralization matters if you don't know the right purpose of decentralization, i.e. the stated context? There are four main purposes. The first three are node-related, and the fourth is miner-related. Number one. Resist shutdown by government. The very reason Bitcoin was invented in 2008 and not sooner was because until then, no one had come up with how to create a money that the government had no capability to shut down. This was the cypherpunk's aim from a long time ago, and it was the culmination of other achievements over the decades. The cypherpunks, advocated and developed tools to guide the internet towards more privacy and sovereignty, invented PGP, public key cryptography for private messaging, defended and won against the U.S. government outlawing PGP, and had several failed attempts at creating digital internet money to bypass government-controlled money. When Bitcoin was created, it was not decentralized from the beginning. It could have been shut down. It was just Satoshi Nakamoto's computer and Hal Finney's, rest in peace. But Bitcoin was not a threat then. Why would any government know about it or care? So it quietly grew, and more and more people joined the network by running nodes. Bitcoin now has the greatest node decentralization compared to any other cryptocurrency by far. It was purposefully designed so that running a node would not be expensive, and therefore not prohibitive to those who were not wealthy. Today, the cost of running a node is about $300 to $400 plus internet data costs. A node is literally the Bitcoin Core software which contains the rules of Bitcoin and a copy of the blockchain, all the transactions from the beginning of Bitcoin's time. Read here to find out in more detail what nodes are, do, and the six reasons to run one. Link will be in the show notes. The thing that government needs to do to wipe out Bitcoin is to destroy every single copy of the blockchain. This is what is decentralized. I have a copy. I have many. And many other Bitcoiners do too. And so should you. If you're not a Bitcoiner, here's why you should be. To recap, 
the nodes are decentralized. There is more than one, and they are geographically dispersed. They cannot be wiped off the face of the planet without wiping out humanity as well. Number two, resist unilateral, unwanted rule changes by bad actors or governments. The rules of Bitcoin are encoded in the software which make a node. Anyone can suggest a change to the rules. The rules are code, but they are not just code. They are agreed-on code. If changed unilaterally, the new code is no longer part of consensus and is no longer part of Bitcoin. Changing something with Bitcoin and remaining in consensus is tricky. If the change is something that doesn't break any existing rules, then people can change that code and still play nicely with the rest of the network. Minor upgrades and improvements to the software fall under this category. For example, spelling errors, nicer graphics, better structuring of data on the hard disk, etc. Sometimes the change might introduce new rules that are more restrictive, i.e. the old rules are not broken. For example, there is currently an upper limit to the block size. If there was a new rule stipulating a reduction in the block size, this would not break the old rule. It would be called a soft fork and needs to be done with care so as to not split the network in two. If done properly, those that choose not to update their software are not necessarily disadvantaged. They can continue to run the older code and remain part of the network. If a new rule is introduced that breaks the current rules, for example, an increase in the block size as happened in 2017, which resulted in the creation of Bitcoin Cash, a massive failure, then this is called a hard fork and basically creates a new chain, an altcoin. Anyone is free to do this, but Bitcoiners are unlikely to unanimously agree and upgrade their nodes. The more users there are who run nodes, the more difficult it is to incorporate unilateral changes that don't split the network and create a doomed altcoin. Basically, you can't unilaterally change Bitcoin. All you'll end up with is an altcoin and a damaged ego or reputation. For an interesting history of the 2017 hard fork, there is an excellent book, The Block Size War, The Battle Over Who Controls Bitcoin's Protocol Rules, which I highly recommend. Link will be in the show notes. 3. Resist Infiltration and Coercion Satoshi Nakamoto, the creator of Bitcoin, disappeared in 2011. Since then, Bitcoin has had no leader, and many, many people have joined in and run Bitcoin nodes. If Satoshi was around, the U.S. government would have intervened by now. I'm not sure how, but one such way could have been to threaten Satoshi to encourage the development of code that would weaken Bitcoin, or help the government in some way to undermine the people who want freedom or privacy. It is unlikely that people would dare leave the main chain away from the leadership of the creator. This is actually the case with Ethereum. Their leader, Vitalik Buterin, has tremendous influence, and it's not clear if the directions he advocates for are coming truly from him or if he is the puppet of, say, the World Economic Forum. There are close ties between the WEF and top-level management of the Ethereum Foundation. Having a leader, and all altcoins do, even if it is just a spiritual leader, is a weakness and an important centralized element. 
People may run their own nodes all over the world. They don't with Ethereum, but they are unlikely to form a network that all agrees to abandon the leader's wishes. So with a leader, the decentralization of nodes becomes almost irrelevant. Apart from being dependent on a leader, the vast majority of altcoin owners are not looking for unstoppable money. They are looking to buy low and sell high. So the question of running a node to form consensus independently to a leader isn't important to them, and you will receive blank stares when it is discussed. Apart from lack of interest, another reason many altcoin nodes are not sufficiently decentralized, particularly Ethereum, is that it is prohibitively expensive to run a node, as the extra functionality on the base layer requires enormous computing power and technical skill to set up and maintain. This results in the majority of independent quote-unquote nodes on large server parks, leaving them open to government and legal attacks. 4. Resist censorship and disruption of the validation mechanism. This refers to miners. Ideally, miners should be decentralized in ownership and geographic location. If many different people mine in many different countries, it is much more difficult to coerce a majority to the will of a nefarious actor or government. The game theory of mining resists this, but it is not perfect. While lack of mining decentralization and coercion of the network is very undesirable, it is not a fatal threat to Bitcoin. Bitcoin is anti-fragile, meaning it can adapt and become stronger. But it may not be pleasant living through some types of attacks. Recently, a large percentage of the mining network was lost suddenly when China banned Bitcoin mining outright. This led to a temporary slowdown and recovery of speed within two weeks and several months later, the worldwide hash rate, mining power, surpassed the all-time high. This recovery is because any loss of mining power in the absence of a proportional price drop will incentivize miners elsewhere to join and make profit. In order to carry out censorship and network validation disturbances, an attacker would require 51% of the world's mining power, at least. The way to achieve this would be to buy or produce an enormous amount of energy and equipment and outpace in competition with the rest of the world, and or reduce the amount of equipment and energy in the possession of the rest of the world. In fewer words, get more and destroy the others, physically or legally. If the rest of the world's equipment is centralized, then that would be easier. Note that energy is decentralized by nature already. Mining decentralization is probably sufficient currently, but no matter how inadequate you may think today's level is for tomorrow's needs, over time, Bitcoin mining becomes more and more decentralized as more people enter the arena. Extra It's crucial to understand that one person running 100,000 nodes does not strengthen the network nor does it weaken it. This is because a node is not just the computer's running code, but a human brain as well. It is a human that runs a node and can resist rule changes to the money that he or she uses. Resisting a rule change with one computer connected to his or her wallet has the same effect as 100,000 nodes available to connect to the same wallet. I once explored this in detail in a tweet. All right, so that wraps up um, this 
excellent little piece on really just kind of trying to wrap your head around decentralization. Um, I think this really hits the nail on the head for the important aspects of it, and I want to I want to expand on a little bit that Armin puts in this piece. Um, but real quick, let's hit our sponsor, and then we'll jump back in. So I have little Rad Swan with me here today, and he is an avid Fold user and a big fan. So Rad, I just wanted to ask, how do you use Fold? Okay, so you just got the app and you get the free sats every day? I mean, that's pretty based, but how do you use it now? Well, yeah, the big percentages back with the gift cards are huge. While I was at Bitblock Boom, I used Uber a lot, and I got 3% back in sats on every single ride. And then, of course, there's Amazon, and as a Spin Plus user myself, I get 5% back on 500 bucks a month. Listen, no, no, I know, I know, but you can't have a debit card, buddy. It's a banking regulation. It's got nothing to do with Fold. You're literally three months old. I know you have a Bitcoin and Lightning wallet. That's how Bitcoin works. You can't do that with the banking system. That's why Fold lets you stack sats on all of your fiat purchases. But they accept Lightning for their gift cards. You can still use Fold all you like. I know, but you don't even have bills. I get sats back on my bills, but I'm paying for your stuff. Wait, it, that has nothing to do with it. I don't. It doesn't matter if it's your diapers. Fine, fine, okay? We'll try to get you a card. I have a discount code, Bitcoin Audible. You can get 20% off. I'm going to let you use it, but I'm telling you now, a three-month-old can't get a debit card. I know, it's not my fault. When you get older, we'll get you a fold card, okay? And you can get sats back on everything you buy, just like all the smart listeners of Bitcoin Audible. <laughs> Link and discount code in the show notes, guys. Check it out. All right. So this article was, I wanted to do this article just because I think people really do just misunderstand what the purpose of decentralization is and why there are so many various elements. You know, it's, it's easy to just be like, oh, it's decentralized or not in the context of do we have a lot of people running it or, you know, whatever it is, but that doesn't mean it doesn't mean it's meaningfully decentralized because the purpose of decentralized... It, decentralization isn't a means to an end. It's a tool to accomplish something. And in the context of a monetary system, the point is to have a set of rules and ability to achieve consensus that is extra-legal, that is not relevant to political consensus because explicitly... Political consensus is so messy, and it is so corrupt, and it is so obviously flawed. It has a central, as a giant third part, centralized or trusted third party, which in banking, there's banking structure, the regulatory structure, the political structure, all of these things are huge trusted third parties that can ruin the arrangement, that can destroy the fail to honor both the implicit, both the spirit of the agreement and the actual, uh, you know, the word, the explicit word of the agreement. So that is the point. The point of decentralization is laid out in these four things, is resist being shut down by a government, by a large corporation, by any competitive entity, by 
Two, resisting unilateral unwanted rule changes by bad actors or governments, which in a sense is kind of the same thing. It's resisting control, but it is a, a different type of resistance. You could have one without the other. Um, resist infiltration and coercion, and then resist censorship and disruption of the validation mechanism. And it's funny, the first three he talks about, like these are basically the problem of the distribution and the breadth or the the scope of the number of nodes that are running fully validating instances of the software and he makes a clarifying point about like one person having a hundred thousand nodes does not change it it's still just one person um and i want to clarify that in just a minute because i find people have a very 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 hard time understanding that principle um, and, you know, usually I'm arguing with some big blocker who says nodes are Sybil attack, can be Sybil attacked, and they completely fail to understand that that has nothing to do with the purpose of running a node. You're not running a node because you're part of some vote as to which network is which. It's a purely defense mechanism. So you having 100,000 nodes versus you having one node is... It accomplishes the same task if it's a fully validating node and you're actually using it. But we'll get, I'll, I'll dig a little bit more into that in a minute. But there's plenty of other areas of decentralization. There is decentralization centralization from the context of like programming or implementation robustness or security. And that's, is everybody running the exact same implementation? And therefore, if there's a bug, the entire, a huge portion of the network is susceptible to it? Or are there many different competing implementations in many different code bases, and therefore any potential bug is likely to only show up in one of them? Therefore, you know, the network is robust. Well, that is a different, that none of that has anything to do with consensus. That has to do with reliability of the underlying software running the system. So that's a robustness form of decentralization. But even if you're running a whole variety of all of these things, but you're not, you're not running them in full consensus and you don't have a network that can defend itself as a consensus mechanism, well, then government will simply dictate consensus by taking over the leader, taking over Amazon Web Services or whatever it is and telling you what to do. That's kind of like what we're seeing with Ethereum right now. And it's like, you know, we warned you, like, this is a critical thing. And, you know, now they're talking about user-activated software. It's like, well, good luck if you're running a quote-unquote full node that's only got 1,024 blocks, um, which in Ethereum is like three hours, four hours, or something like that. And, of course, you move to proof-of-stake. Uh, you've just... The obviousness that they've ended up with an entirely political system while using a system... a, a the point of decentralization is to remove the politics, is that the rules cannot be changed, is that the rules are fairly and independently determined. They are agreed upon through consensus of the people who choose those rules. If the individual doesn't have the option of choosing the rules, it just, it, it, it gets me. But, um, so this is the purpose. It is to survive against a government such that its consensus overrides or simply not that it overrides it simply doesn't care about political consensus because this is a far more strict and far more perfectly defined type of consensus 
And Bitcoin is an insanely strict set of rules, right? There's a very small scope of what you can do with it. It's, you, it's arguably one of the most heavily and concretely regulated systems on the planet. It just doesn't care if the political facade or the elite of the day agree with its regulations because it, regu it, it creates its own environment. And that's the point. Otherwise, it's not a consensus mechanism. It didn't solve the Byzantine general's problem. It provides us no value if it then is simply susceptible. Like, it's not an alternative consensus system if it's subject, subject to politics. It just isn't. We, we, we're in the in same environment. It's not a revolutionary technology. It's not an innovation. If politics can override it, that's the whole point. This is a global, decentralized, can't be altered, can't be changed, can't be shut down by government system. That is the entire reason it is wildly and insanely valuable from the context of history. In a very similar way to how the internet was a means of communication that did not truly have jurisdictions and did not have borders and did not have owners. It was a network without a network owner. Bitcoin is property rights and monetary consensus without monetary owners, without a center. It is replacing top-down violent geographic enforcement with voluntary network participation. If it cannot resist the control from governments or bad actors, resist shutdown, resist coercion and infiltration and alteration of the protocol, and censorship and disruption of its validation mechanism, then it doesn't do the thing that it does. It simply is not an independent consensus mechanism. It is still subject to political consensus, to the violent geographic consensus. This is also the point of Bitcoin maximalism. It's that only those things which actually achieve the one thing that is truly revolutionary in Bitcoin are useful. All the other stuff is just another security or another kind of crappy network that we have tons of thousands, millions of. If it doesn't separate money and state then it's not an interesting money. It's just another digital token like all of the other digital tokens with a trusted third party. It's just a more limited trusted third party. It's only the strongest of the violent trusted third parties or whatever you would want to say. Um, but it, again, it doesn't change the game if it doesn't do that. That is the only decentralization that is meaningful. That is the that is the task. That is the reason Bitcoin maximalists are Bitcoin maximalists. And if somebody says they're a Bitcoin maximalist and they don't know that, then they're not one to me because they're irrelevant. They don't know why we're here. This is about defending consensus from any and all adversaries with obviously the final boss being an, a world power government. Now, I do want to hit the... Uh, just so that you can conceptualize what the importance of a node is is that let's say it's a way to defend the real market again going back to the example that uh armin the parman used of running a hundred thousand nodes does not strengthen strengthen the network nor does it weaken it and this is where so many people misunderstand consensus is not a vote for how many nodes there are it is the market a full node, a full validating node, is able to defend a market participant 
from anyone altering the rules. Like if you're running a light client or if you're running, if you're just connecting to some other node and they get taken over, they get corrupted by government or they get, you know, isolated and pointed out and their node goes down or they're forced to upgrade to some malicious client that wants to spy on everybody or change the rules, blah, blah, blah. If you're just running a mobile wallet and connecting to them, well, then you're just going to go onto whatever network they create. You're entirely dependent on their concept of consensus, and they can change it, and you can't do anything about it. If you are running a fully validating node, their changing of consensus simply changes their individual consensus, and they just get booted off of your network. If you're running a fully validating node, you can always ensure that you are simply connecting to the network that is running the same rules as you. It is self-defense. And self-defense is not susceptible to Sybil attack. It's not a vote. And the easiest way to demonstrate this, I don't care how many big blockers tell you that this is what small blockers think because it's not. They simply fail to understand. Either they're strawmanning the shit out of it or they're just in denial and they refuse to understand it. Or they're just too stupid to understand it. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt and just say that they're so, their bags are so heavy they refuse to understand it. But it's not a vote. And it's very, very easy to demonstrate why. And all you have to do is go to the extremes. So is there, there's a million users and there's one node versus there's a million users and there's a million nodes. And those correspond with each user. Each user is running their own node. So what happens in the network if government tries to take over consensus and do a hard fork and force everybody on it if there's one node and a million users that all connect directly to that one node? Well, the government comes in, changes the code or forces them to download, you know, puts a gun to their head and says, download my malicious client. And they do it. They update that one node. That's the only consensus node on the entire network. All million users are immediately on the hard fork. Now, maybe they can see it. You know, maybe they can download the information and just look and be like, oh, well, this block, I can go on a block, go on a block explorer, which is just another trusted third party, but whatever. They're going to go and they're going to look at the blocks and they're going to see if like everything checks out manually and turns out it's a hard fork, it's malicious code and it's being censored or sanctioned or whatever it is. They get very fussy, right? Oh my God, this is terrible. I can't believe you did this. It's like, well, no, you did this because you're not running a node. They can't do anything about it. They can't do anything. The only thing they can do is run a node. The problem is now they can't even run a fully validating node at all. The network's gone because they only had one source of history, and that history is now deleted. It's now changed, which means that they have to start over. If, if, alter, if that one node altered the history, it's just gone. The whole network is just done. So that's with no fully validating nodes. Now imagine you have a million users and one million validating nodes and maybe you've got one that's just like really well connected for some reason you know it's like the the biggest exchange node so a lot of people are, i don't know that doesn't make any sense because the the network just randomly connects but regardless you have a million validating nodes what happens if the government goes to this big giant corporation node just like they did in the last scenario and they force them to install the malicious update nothing nobody sees it nobody cares Every single 999,999 fully validating nodes simply evict them from the network. Just says this is not even accurate information. Get off the network. And now either the corporation reverts back to the other node 
or they don't have an industry. They don't have a market. They don't have an ecosystem. They have nothing because they're not even connected to the same network. They're literally selling a shitcoin that no one in the world can buy. Like, like no, one, no one in the world is even participating on the network of. Now, think about a Sybil attack in both of those scenarios. So a Sybil attack is when somebody spins up a million nodes out of nowhere and alters the block information or alters the code or whatever and forces... And it's able to make it appear, quote-unquote, that uh, a million participants, a million economic actors in this system have decided on this other client. So they're going to download, in the scenario where there's only one, uh, one node, well, they can install, rather than going after the one corporate node, which would obviously be the easiest scenario, but rather than doing that, they can just spin up a million nodes that are all fake and have their own malicious client and what are those, all those light clients going to do? They're just going to connect randomly. Therefore, they're all just going to be, yet again, completely susceptible to uh, whatever client they decide to spin up on these million fake nodes. Um, so it doesn't really change the situation. It's just a different way to cause the same problem. But now let's go back to the million users with a million validating nodes scenario. And somebody spins up a million fake nodes with this other malicious client on it to make it look like there's an even split between the, the, the ecosystem. Half the people want this client and half the people want this client. What happens to those million other nodes? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Nobody is, the, the network doesn't work because somebody's checking a block explorer somewhere and looking at node count to download some other implementation. That's ridiculous. It has nothing to do with how Bitcoin works. Every single, those million fake nodes are just the, it's a social attack. It's not a consensus attack. It's not a network attack, unless, of course, nobody's running any fully validating nodes. But if everybody's running a fully validating node, it doesn't matter if you have a billion fake nodes, 10 fake nodes, or it just doesn't matter. It is completely irrelevant. A fully validating node isn't going to give a shit if there's a billion nodes feeding them false information because it just checks. It fully validates. If the information is false, it just ignores it and looks for a different node. It cannot be Sybil attacked because validation is self-done. It happens on your client. Those million nodes are completely and totally meaningless. In fact, the only reason you would be susceptible to a Sybil attack is if you weren't running a fully validating node. The, val the validating node is your solution. It's the antidote to being Sybil attacked. You would not believe how many times I have attempted to explain this to the big blockers. And I swear they just refuse to listen because their bags are that heavy. But it's not, it does not seem like a difficult concept to me. Um, like you just, it's a very basic understanding of how a, a consensus is achieved. Or not even, not even how consensus is achieved, but just how a network is established. Anyway, anyway. Um, so that's the reason why 100,000 nodes are irrelevant. And, you know, Armin the Parman makes a good sense, like, uh, makes a good point, too, is that if I spin up 100,000 nodes, it's equally, it doesn't do anything good, it doesn't do anything bad. It's, it's kind of irrelevant. It's still basically just one node because it's me defending myself as an economic Bitcoin user. So for the network, it doesn't really do anything. 
And it also doesn't really give me any added protection. You know, it's just basically irrelevant. Like, the only thing it could potentially be useful for is a social attack, which we've watched fail over and over and over again. Bitcoin Classic spun up, like, thousands of fake nodes. Um, Bcash spun up thousands. Like, all during the block size war, also another... That, that's something that he uh, mentions in this piece, and I also highly recommend it. I believe it is, like, one of the most important things that you can read is like a prerequisite if you're trying to grasp how Bitcoin works and why it works. The block size war is the best in the trenches example of how Bitcoin works, like proof of its of the the dynamic of the consensus dynamic between the network, between the miners, between the developers, like the corporations, like these things are in a constant struggle to achieve consensus because of how Bitcoin works. And they each essentially play different sorts of roles and they, they exist in different levels of, uh, of the system, so to speak. Um, but anyway, that's a long way of saying you should listen to The Block Size War and also I read it, so it's that much better. I will have, uh, I'll have a link in the show notes so you can check it out. Um, but uh, yeah, with that, uh, I just thought this was a really cool piece. Uh, and, you know, it, it hits one important topic that is so very, very often completely misunderstood. Decentralization is not for a facade. It's not so the network works a little bit faster. It's not so you have a bunch of seeders. It is purely and simple that the consensus works outside of social and political consensus, that it is independent of these things and therefore is a new consensus mechanism. It is an innovation in the context of establishing a set of monetary rules. That is what makes it revolutionary, and that is why it's going to fundamentally change the world. And if your shitcoin project has a leader and has barely a handful of full nodes and is using proof of stake and all of these other things so that it can get some silly little feature like, oh, I can run a computer program on it or whatever, then it's irrelevant. You can do that on tons of other networks. The question is, does it exist outside of the direct control or manipulation of a government? Because if it doesn't, then it's not an innovation. It's just a different, slower, more complicated way to do the same shit we could do in a hundred other different ways. So, that'll close it out. Big thanks to Armin the Parman for this. This is again on BitcoinReserve.com. Uh, I have the link to it if you want to check it out. They've actually got a lot of other great stuff on the blog, um, so highly recommend it. I, Bitcoin Reserve is one of probably my top ten. I'll go back to every so often looking for looking for new stuff. Um, I think I've only read like one or two maybe on the on the website, um, but uh, they've got some good stuff from time to time. So check them out. I'll have the link in the show notes. And thank you to CoinKite, to Swan Bitcoin. And, of course, to Fold and the Fold Guard for making this show happen. I am out, finished just in time, making it to the Bitcoin meetup. I will catch you all tomorrow with another episode. This is Bitcoin Audible, and I am Guy Swan. Until next time, everybody, take it easy, guys. You have been listening to Bitcoin Audible, a 111 production.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.